This is episode 58 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Janet Jones. Janet grew up in Arizona, where kids rode ponies to each other's houses and hopped bushes in the desert for fun. For years, she lived at a 60-horse barn riding under the supervision of two trainers. Most of her mounts were young or difficult, a diverse influx of babies who didn't know the human world yet, and bad actors no one else wanted to handle. Janet schooled seven or eight of them a day and taught beginning riders. She also showed some of the more advanced horses, eventually qualifying for the U.S. Olympic Jumper Program. After a head injury, Janet began reading about brains, eventually earning a PhD from UCLA in cognitive science. Don't worry, cognitive science is just a fancy phrase for figuring out what happens inside normal noggins on a regular day. Janet's research on human brain function won UCLA's Dissertation Award in 1989. The following year, it was a national finalist for the New York Academy of Sciences Award for the Best Psychology Dissertation in the United States. Since then, she's written for a bunch of scientific journals and some popular horse magazines. Janet's first book, Understanding Psychological Science, and its companion instructor's manual were published in 1995. Three years later, The Psychotherapist's Guide to Human Memory came out. Horse Brain, Human Brain is Janet's fourth book. She taught the neuroscience of human perception, language, memory, and thought to college students for 23 years. There's nothing quite like describing the innards of a neuron to bleary-eyed 18-year-olds at 8 a.m. in the morning. Janet had to learn how to explain brains in simple, interesting ways that would at least keep the kids awake. That plain language helps her apply brain function to horsemanship today. Horses and brains fully converged in 2014 when Equus magazine began to publish Janet's writings on brain-based horsemanship. She had left her position as a tenured full professor and opened a training business for horse and human teams. It included beginning to advanced horsemanship in both Western and English disciplines. The business allowed Janet to study on horseback how to best apply detailed principles of brain function to the mutual interaction between horses and riders. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horsebook authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horsebook. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm so excited to have Janet Jones on the show with me today. Hi, Janet. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much, Carly. It's good to be here with you. I love having fellow authors and talking about this, and today's conversation is going to be really interesting. We're talking human and horse brain science with Janet, but as everyone knows, I always love to start these conversations off with learning about how your love affair with horses began. As I galloped around your website, I, I learned that you've trained horses at a large stable for many years, 
and later ran a successful horse training business of your own. And you have competed in hunter, jumper, halter, reining, and Western pleasure disciplines. Western pleasure is one of my personal favorites. So Gina, would you share with us how your love affair with horses began? I grew up in a very, very small town, which is now a big city. It was Scottsdale, Arizona. And when I grew up in Scottsdale, it had a population less than 10,000 people. <laughs> and the entire city of Scottsdale was limited to four square miles. And it was completely surrounded by horse ranches and cattle ranches. And so most of the roads were dirt. It was a very, very rural area. And so we kids all used horses as our forms of transportation. So instead of having bicycles like kids have now to ride around the neighborhood and go visit their buddies, we just hopped on a horse and rode down the road to go and visit our buddies. And when there was a horse show, we usually rode to the horse show. That's how we got there. We didn't have any horse trailers or anything like that. And um, so by the time we got to the shows, our horses were all warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And we were ready to go, you know. So... I was around horses all the time. They were just uh, part of life growing up. And by the time I was about seven years old, I started taking uh, daily lessons on horses to learn to really ride well. And I was showing by the time I was nine or 10 years old. And by the time I was about 12 years old, I was riding multiple horses on a daily basis. And it was a huge part of my life. It was a, a very wonderful, uh, it was a wonderful experience for me, as probably it was for many of us who are horse crazy, even now. So by the time I was about 15 years old, I was living at a large barn by then. We had space for about 80 horses, but usually we only had 60, 65 horses there, but still it was really big. There was a lot going on. There were a lot of different horses coming in and out on a regular basis. And so I was riding somewhere between five and 10 of those horses every day by the time I was 15 years old. And I was able to do that through a really strange little thing, a little quirk in the baby boomer era that was called double sessions in school. By the time I was 15 years old, I was uh, I was going to high school to finish up, and I had to go to classes for about two hours a day. And those classes happened from six in the morning until eight in the morning. And the rest of the day was mine. Oh, and, that's awesome. <laughs> and all the horses, of course. And so I was really lucky I got to experience life on a horse ranch and uh, life with a lot of horses riding all day long every day from a very young age. That's amazing. And I, I love the insight that you shared about Scottsdale, Arizona, because I actually moved to Arizona a few years ago. So I'm living in the Scottsdale that, or the Scottsdale Phoenix area that's changed quite a bit. And I love hearing these older stories about how everything was dirt roads and everything was horse ranches. And it's so different now. I actually got a little slice of heaven. I now have my horses at home in the backyard in Arizona. So there's still a nice horsey culture going on here, but I would have loved to live here during the time that you did when you were able to just ride your horses everywhere to horse shows and, you know, over to friends' houses. And that sounds incredible. Now, were your parents horsey people? Is that, is that how, how horses came into your life? My parents were not 
terribly horsey people. I mean, they were not in the horse profession. Mm -hmm. um, my father rode, and again, the horses were just kind of part of the culture that we lived in. And so although my parents were not uh, in the horse profession, we had many friends who were, and we kind of, you know, got involved with all that. So. That, that's great. So it's just like the, a wonderful place for a girl that loves horses to grow up in because they're just, they were just at the time sort of everywhere, which is lovely. In Arizona, I love Arizona. It's pretty amazing. Hot, hot right now, I have to be honest. But, oh, but in the winter, it's nice. Oh my gosh, it's lovely. I grew up in Michigan. So we had, you know, the majority of the year was gray and cold and rainy and sloppy. And that's just not fun for horses. So here you kind of have to tough it out for three months in the summer when it's pretty hot and just stay in the air conditioning and keep the horses cool. But then the rest of the year, it's just beautiful. Or you can go up north, right? So right. It's, it's a great place to live. And I love that we have that in common. That's so cool. Now, when I, when I sent over your interview questions, I, I, I always ask, is, you know, is there an interesting story that, pe that people would, would like to know before we get in depth into the interview and start talking about your books about your horse background and something in your horse background actually led to sort of the journey you're, you're on now. Are you comfortable sharing the story you shared with me uh, sure. so we can kind of set the stage for the rest of the interview questions? Sure. So my life has centered around horses and brains. And people often ask me what the reason is for that, because it's a very unusual combination mm -hmm. and really two very different worlds, an academic world on the one hand in terms of brain science and, and a scientific world, and then the horse world on the other hand. And, and they're, they're very different. So when I was living in Scottsdale and riding so often, I, of course, like all of us, had my share of accidents and injuries with horses. And one of those injuries is what started me studying human brains. I was riding a very young horse, probably about three at that time. He might have been two still, but somewhere around in there. And um, he was a quarter horse, beautiful quarter horse. And uh, we decided that it would be fun to see whether he had any talent or kind of innate interest for cutting. Mm. And he had never been around cattle before. And cutting was something that I had done a little bit, you know, now and then. I, I had ridden some cutting horses, usually not in shows, but in real situations where cattle needed to be cut. And so we were in an arena. We had some cattle in there. I took this horse in, and I thought that we were just kind of walking around, you know, looking at the steers and checking out what was going on and just kind of giving this young horse an idea of what this was all about. And we were looking to see, was he going to be curious about the cattle? Was he going to be afraid of the cattle? Was he, you know, how is he going to respond? Because that tells us a lot about whether the horse has talent for that particular discipline. Well, it turned out that he had great talent for the discipline. He uh, took a couple of very interested looks at these steers, and then he basically just cut one out of the herd without my <laughs> realizing that that's what we were going to do. Oh my. And he made a super fast, you know, all cutting turns are super fast, but um, he was not a baby in terms of being able to turn. And so he, he turned in, you know, a millisecond and I stayed on him, but I had these little English spurs on 
you know, little, like half inch little spur. And one of them caught him on the side when he made this big turn that I wasn't ready for. And he bucked and I flew off. And unfortunately, I, it, 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 the, the impact drove me right straight into a railroad tie. It knocked me out. I, I don't quite know how to tell this part of the story because I was, I was not able to remember any of this. But several hours later, um, maybe seven or eight hours later, I found myself sitting at a kitchen table with a number of other people. And I had no memory of how I had gotten there or where I had been or what had happened. And so I said something to my friends that they found odd, something like, you know, what, what's going on or what's happening right now? And they said, do you remember falling off DC this morning? And I said, yeah, I remember that. And, and they said, well, you know, that's, that's really all that, that happened. It's just been kind of a normal day. And it turned out that I had been, um, I had ridden numerous other horses. I had gone and caught them. I had tacked them up. I had cooled them off. I had washed them, put them away. I had eaten lunch. I had just gone about a very normal day in my life with absolutely no conscious awareness at all. And these bouts of amnesia continued with me temporarily, just off and on for about two years. And it fascinated me to think that, you know, there were times when I just wouldn't be aware of what had happened for the last two hours. And there were other times when maybe it would last as long as a day that I wouldn't know what I was doing. But everyone around me told me that I was acting totally normally. I was doing my work. Uh, there was, you know, not, it was just, it was amnesia. So I, that fascinated me so much that I started reading books about human brains because I really wanted to know what is that and what in the world allows a human brain to just go on functioning like that when the owner of the brain has no idea what's going on, you know? And um, it turns out that even today, we still don't have a terrific answer for that question. We know that it has to do with damage to the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And so I know that that injury had to have damaged my hippocampus at that time. But we, we, we really still, there are a lot of questions. So that particular injury is what caused me to go on and get a PhD in brain science and spend a career in brain science teaching people about human brains. So that's a little story that kind of takes you from how, how I got from the horses to the brains. Wow, and thank you for sharing that with us. That is, that is just, that is a story. I mean, I am like kind of breathless thinking about that experience about being able to move through your day and do all the things that you do and have no memory of it at certain points of time. That is, that is crazy. And that can, that happened while doing something that you love with horses. And, and what's even, I think, more impressive about this is it led you to study the human brain, but you stayed involved with horses. An accident like that could scare someone away from being around these wonderful animals and, and you're full on and still involved. Yes. And I was very strongly involved for many years after that training in school. So the, the injury or the accident didn't 
you know, stop me from riding or working with the horses at all. Because by the time I got out of the amnesia, I had already been riding all that time. <laughs> like, I didn't have to worry about fear because I couldn't remember being free. So that, that draw, that magnet that is the horse is real for you, whether you remember it or not. It's, it's just yeah. going to happen. Yep. True horse girl right here. And and thank you for telling us. That's like the perfect setup for talking about horse brain, human brain, the neuroscience of horsemanship. This is your fourth book. Can you talk to us a little bit? Uh, tell us a little bit about what this book is about. And and obviously, I'm imagining all of your training in neuroscience and and this accident kind of compelled you to to take a look at this and explore this book and and write this book. I would imagine it did. So. When I returned to horse training after decades of studying human brains, I could see right away that a lot of the misunderstandings between horses and humans, or just, you know, the problems that, that people were having with their horses, were caused by a misunderstanding of the equine brain. Mm -hmm. And I realized that no one had really studied the equine brain to a thorough degree. There were still a lot of questions about it. But I also could see that our own human brain causes us to assume that horses think the way we do and that they see the world the way we do and hear it and smell it. And that, you know, basically that a horse is just sort of a bigger, furrier version of a human being and that we all kind of experience what's going on in the world in generally the same way. And it became very obvious to me that that was not the case, that horses were viewing and experiencing the world in a very different way than humans do. And I felt quite sorry for the horses because, of course, they're the foreigners mm. here. They're being required to live in a human world. We are not being required to live in a horse world, but you can imagine if we were. If someone put me on a trailer and hauled me out to a pasture and turned me loose with, you know, 20, uh, 20 horse friends, I would be pretty unsure how to manage. Where do I find water? Where do I find food? How do I eat? Who are my friends? How do I communicate in this world? So it just seemed to me that it would be worth trying to consider these misunderstandings from the point of view of of the brain. And I began at that time writing articles for Equus magazine, which were very helpful for me. They really were because they allowed me to focus on one narrow little part of a, of a horse human problem and then publish an article about explaining that in Equus. And then um, I also got tremendous feedback and positive support from the readers of Equus magazine who would then contact me with questions or ideas or sometimes just to say, hey, that was really interesting. And I think for a writer, we all need that kind of encouragement. We need to know that there is an audience out there and they are interested in what we're saying. And once I kind of realized that, that really helped me then on the path to this book. You bring up a really great point there, too. Free, freelance writing actually gives you the opportunity to test a topic and with an, a readership and see if they're interested in it. But then as you're writing these articles and you're exploring a very focused area, that, that can become eventually content 
for your book as you're exploring the different sources. So, so this is actually a really great strategy. I mean, you, you kind of did some early exploration with readership on this topic. I mean, it was fascinating for you and I'm sure this book was going to be written anyway, but you, you got feedback that people are interested in the topic that you're interested in exploring for a book. So that's, that's really great. Yes. It, it is a wonderful way. I would really encourage people to do that because it really gives you an idea without having to write an entire book. Mm-hmm. Just write one small article and see how that goes. And then that's kind of your guinea pig. And, and you can judge from there whether you really have something that's going to interest people or not. Mm-hmm. So you said you were writing these articles for, for Equus, which is great. So there, I imagine there was quite a bit of research that that went into this book project. Can you talk a little bit about how you researched uh, the topics for this book? Most of the research was already in my head because I have spent a lifetime studying horses and brains and teaching people about horses and brains. So it was um, it was the natural path for me to take. But of course, I had to cite all of my sources in my book. Uh, the end of the book contains about 20 pages of source notes mm-hmm. so that people can go back to those if they want to and learn more. And so that they know that this information is not just dreamed up out of my head, but that it is actually based on scientific fact. And the research that I used <clears throat> is primarily journal articles um, explaining experimental studies uh, that were done in a variety of different disciplines. So there's quite a bit there from medical science for humans. Uh, there's uh, uh, quite a few articles from neurology. There are a lot from cognitive science um, in terms of the, how the human brain works, which is my field. And then in addition to that, I delved pretty much equally into veterinary science. Um, so that I could understand better from that point of view what's going on with the horses and equine science to pull it all together. So those kind of were the various areas that came together. Horse and human brain interaction, I mean, the way that we work with horses so that our brains and their brains become the sole point of contact for our communication Mm. is really a brand new field. There really isn't anybody who has tried to do that. And so there wasn't anything written on that. And that's where I was able to bring in some of my own experiences and the philosophies and the training techniques that I've developed over the years, um, just trying to figure out, okay, here's a brain principle that ought to work, but now I need to go out to the barn and see if it really does work with my horses and my training horses and my students. So I was able to test all of those things. Um, And then another thing I would bring up is that a lot of the research that is published on this is very new. So just to give you an example, um, the first ever precise brain image of a horse brain wasn't published until April of 2019. Wow. So this is is very new. And that's shocking. It is kind of shocking. It is surprising. And the book talks about some of the reasons for that. You know, horses are difficult to study compared to other types of animals. Well, and they're so large. I mean, they have to be sedated to do, you know, a brain scan of that type. Exactly. And, you know, as soon as you sedate a horse, you've totally altered his behavior. So Mm -hmm. you can really test his behavior at the same time. 
there are complications, but there's a lot of new research coming down the pike. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that this book will maybe encourage people to do more of that kind of research. That is exciting. I, I love hearing these stories. And, and as I was trying to wrap my head around this, I did ask in your uh, questionnaire that I sent over in advance of the, the, the interview, you mentioned that throughout the book, you share true stories of horses and handlers attempting to understand each other, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. And you share those in the book to help illustrate the principles uh, that you're sharing in the book. And then I asked you if you'd share an example of a team working together successfully or not so successfully. And you said that that would take probably, you know, you know, <laughs> entire interview to explain. <laughs> but you did share a very interesting example of how the horse brain does work with me when you were talking about the field boots. I was wondering yeah. if you would share share that just to give a little perspective on the horse brain and kind of how it how it sort of sees the world. I thought this was fascinating. Yeah, um, this is a good example of how how totally different horse brains operate compared to human brains on things that we aren't even aware of in our everyday lives. We, most people who aren't brain scientists don't even know that our brains do this. It's totally automatic. So the human brain has a brain process, a higher order process called categorical perception. And all that means is that basically our brains automatically organize the sights and sounds of the outside world as they come into us. And so when, when we see a number of instances of a similar thing, but you, you mentioned boots, field boots or mud boots. When we see a bunch of different instances of let's say mud boots, um, they're all different sorts of types and brands and sizes and colors of mud boots. Our brains automatically categorize those all into a concept that we call mud boots. Mm. We might even categorize them into something bigger, boots mm -hmm. in general, right? Horse brains do not do that. Horse brains don't have the ability to automatically group instances together. They can learn to do it. They can be taught to do that. And they have certain capacities for that, but it's effortful. It's not something that their brains just do the way our brains do. Our brains are so good at this that we don't even notice that it's happening. It's just, we just take it completely for granted. So what happens then is that <clears throat> your horse doesn't mind seeing mud boots that are standing in the barn where they always are. Mm -hmm. And they're usually your mud boots. So they're probably the same size, the same color, and the same brand every time he sees them. And they're probably located in roughly the same place in the barn. Because as humans, we tend to kind of, you know, put things where they go, right? Unless, um, you're, my, unless you're my husband. <laughs> I, Sorry. Um, so... The horse probably doesn't mind seeing those mud boots in the context where they normally are. But if those mud boots are sitting out by the water trough one day, it's very likely that he will be afraid of them. He will shy from them. He may snort and look at them and open his eyes and say, what in the world is that? I've never seen that before. Mm. And usually as humans, having the automatic ability to perceive categorically, we say something relatively stupid, 
like you've seen those boots a million times don't give me this we have walked past those boots you've seen those boots in the barn but the fact of the matter is the horse has not seen those boots ever before because they've never before been sitting by the water trough outside away from the barn in the sunlight rather than in the shadow mm. um, so the context of each thing that a horse sees or hears or experiences plays a big role in that horse's brain whereas the context for us doesn't matter that much We're, our brains are just focused on the object and we assume that it's the same object that we have seen before even when it might technically it, it may not be so it's really important to know about stuff like that because if you can anticipate what the horse is going to be afraid of what he might shy at you'll be able to stay in the tack better if you know that's coming and you can eventually teach him that there's no need to shy from that but that actually is a familiar object that is not dangerous not worrisome and because of that i think a lot of my work with brain-based horsemanship comes back to the notion of trust that if you understand the horse's brain you can then build a bond of trust with him that is unlike any other type of trust you can build the same is true for people we build trusting bonds with people who know us well they know how we think they know how we're likely to react they understand us they're forgiving when we react in maybe a way that we really shouldn't um, those are the people that we trust and horses are the same that way so the more the more we can give a trust give a horse in terms of understanding the better that we're able to um, create those kinds of bonds and that that is just fascinating and it i'm so excited that you wrote this book because i i think that's what true horsewomen and horsemen want is that trusting complete bond with their horse and the and the the better the best way to get that is to really educate yourself about what is going on with your horse and and this this is so insightful because um, imagine how much better the partnership with the horse can be if you can understand the way that they're thinking. So I think this is really important research. It's much better, much better. It really is, it works much better. And not only understand what they're thinking, but once we understand it, we can then change our methods, mm -hmm. sometimes in very simple, easy ways that cause a horse to kind of suddenly realize, oh, that's what they want. That's what they want me to do. When a horse might have been perfectly willing to do whatever that maneuver was before, but just couldn't understand, you know, what the what it was that was being asked. So, uh, personally, I think it helps a lot. Oh, that makes. I mean, that makes so much sense. So now, if you know, so you give real live examples from your training experience inside this book about horse teams working together towards success using this understanding of how the human brain works but then how the horse brain works. So there, you can get concrete results in working with your animal after reading yes. your, your book. Yes. That's, that's wonderful. And this is an important book. And I know you, you shared a lot of really amazing messages in, the, in that last uh, question. But after people have finished reading uh, Horse Brain, Human Brain, 
what do you hope they walk away from your words having gained? Is there, is there something that you, you hope this, that resonates with people after reading your book? Yes, I do. I guess the basic message that I want people to understand is that horse brains and human brains are very, very different. And I think we do our horses and ourselves a disservice when we imagine that they're very similar to, to us because really the, at the brain level, they're not. Um, what we see or smell is not the same as what the horse sees or smells out when we're both standing right there looking at exactly the same thing. And we don't learn like they do and they don't reason like we do. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me, and I guess the ultimate message of the book that I hope people get is that I really want us to honor these differences instead of ignoring them. Mm, that makes so much sense. And it really is a testament to how amazing these animals really are, how amazing horses really are, and that explanation of the mud boots, that they will let their humans do so much with them, take them to horse shows, throw them in a horse trailer, take them out on the trails, expose them to all these things, move things around on them, expose them to all these things without understanding how their brain works or how they think or see or smell these things. It's amazing that they let us do the things that they actually let us do with them. I mean, that's a testament to the animal, right? Would you agree with that? Oh, I agree completely with that. I think horses are so generous to allow us to do all these things, even though they're, they have to be completely confused mm -hmm. a huge amount of the time. And we see more of this when we work with real young horses. You know, if you go out and you work with a two or three-year-old horse, you see a lot of this confusion that has disappeared by the time the horse is eight or ten years old. Um, but that, it takes a long time for a horse to, um, to recognize that. And I agree with you completely that they're tremendously generous animals. We can learn a lot from horses, and, and by understanding them more, I, I believe we can learn even more. So thank you for your contribution in writing this book so we can understand our animals even better. Uh, and I wanted to also mention, you've also written three other books. Can you talk to us about, about those books? And then perhaps if you've got your books there, maybe hold up uh, Horse Brain, Human Brain so we can see the cover of that, and then talk to us about your, your other books as well. I do. My, the first book that I wrote was called Understanding Psychological Science, and um, it was actually a textbook uh, for how to actually develop and conduct and design um, studies of the human brains used in a course that I used to teach quite a bit. And um, there was uh, an instructor's manual that went along with that book. Um, in what was a very shocking turquoise color back in the day. <laughs> and then I guess about five years after I wrote those two books, they came together in succession. So um, that was a big project. And then the next one was The Psychotherapist's Guide to Human Memory, mm. which is a book that it's very scientific. It's technical. It is an overview of how human memory works. And it, that was at a stage when I was really uh, completely immersed in human brain science and teaching. And there's nothing in there about horses. I don't think it ever mentions <laughs> horses at all. And then this brand new book that I've just written is Horse Brain, Human Brain. Beautiful. And, yeah. And 
So this is the one that just came out. I'm, I'm very excited about it. So far, it's gotten some positive feedback. People have said that they like it, that they're interested in it, and I'm very happy with it. So I'm glad that it has turned out as well as it has. That's wonderful. I'm I'm excited. I can't I cannot wait to get my hands on this book and explore it. This this sounds exactly like what's next for a lot of a lot of horse people. Like what's next? Let's understand because I'm always on a mission to understand my horse better. And I think mo- most people that own their own horses and are really in love with these animals want to do that. So this is I think so. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is a great. Well, I appreciate that. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask one more question and then we're going to shift a little bit more into you know the business side of of writing your books but given the amnesia that you experienced after that accident and where you are now are you still dealing with that brain injury currently or is that something that healed it healed and so i had those experiences those those temporary bouts of amnesia for about 2 years after the injury mm-hmm. and that was decades ago Mm-hmm. And once I got past that two-year period, they disappeared. I have never had that experience again. From what I can tell, my brain works okay. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. You're, you've written. You're, you're teaching neuroscience, and you you know you have a PhD, and you've written four books. I, I, it sounds like it's working great. <laughs> it must be doing all right, from what I can tell. Um, and my friends don't tell me that I suddenly, you know ask them, hey, what's happening? Where are we? What are we doing here? Um, so it was just a, it was just that two-year period, and that is kind of a, a relatively normal course for an injury of that sort, that you would have temporary amnesia off and on for a period of time, and that event, eventually the brain heals, and those injured parts of the hippocampus might or might not grow back. You don't really know exactly what's going on there. I had brain images done when I was a graduate student uh, just for the purposes of research, just you know, to help another researcher out. And those, uh, they, they came back totally normal. There was nothing that anybody noticed from that injury. So. Well, I am so relieved to hear that, that your health, you know, healed and your brain healed and you came back and, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you stayed involved with horses because look, you know, and and it's an interesting thing to look at too. Like sometimes these horrific things that happen in our lives actually lead us on a path to something really amazing that we wind up creating, you know, so, so there, there's like a bright spot here, right? You know, all this all this that happened to your brain and all your interest in what was going on with your brain led you down a road to where you wrote this book, Horse Brain, Human Brain. And then you're making difference in horses' lives and humans' lives and their relationships together. So there's like this really beautiful bright spot that happened, even though that was a very tragic moment in your young life. (laughs) But yeah, I agree with you. I feel really lucky to have been able to pull this all together. Yeah. You, 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 you took that incident and you created something out of it. I mean, that's, that's really a, bold, brave, amazing thing to, to have accomplished. So in your uh, responses to the questions, you shared something really interesting. A lot of people ask you uh, how they can learn to write well. Now that you have several books under your belt, what, what advice would you have for fellow writers about learning how to write well? People do ask me that often. And I think they don't just mean write well, but I think they also mean publish well, mm. you know, both of those things. So um, the things that have helped me tremendously, one is I think that in order to be a good and successful writer, and I 
point out that those two things are not always the same, right? But to be both of those things, I think that you have to read very widely and very deeply. And I think by deeply, you have to read not only in depth in the particular topic that you're interested in, but I think that you have to read in terms of deeply analyzing mm-hmm. how another author has put her thoughts together on the page to make them work. And you have to think about if she had changed, let's say this one word right here, how would that have affected the meaning of just that one sentence? I think that's the level of analysis that is really helpful for writers. And it's hard to do, it takes a lot of time and many people just don't want to be that detail oriented. Mm -hmm but it does help. I think that it's important to practice writing several hours a day, no matter what you are writing, if you're writing just for yourself or if you're writing for a publication, in order to keep your skills sharp, you need to be writing something every day. Get feedback from people. So once you write something, get it out to some people, ask them. Be careful about who your people are. But I do think it's really important to get feedback both from people you know and from people you don't know. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things we talked about earlier that my Equus articles really helped me with is that I was getting feedback from Equus readers who I have never met. So they had no reason to tell me that something was particularly good or particularly bad, mm-hmm. except for their beliefs that it was. You know, um, and, the, and the other thing I would say in terms of this sort of advice is something I think many writers don't do, and it's hard to do. We have to remember that the reader is always right, hmm. period. If we don't agree with them, too bad. We're wrong. They are right. Hmm. So if a reader says that some paragraph or some passage is confusing or difficult, It is. By definition, it is. Because this writing that we are doing is for our readers. It's not for us. It's for our readers. And if our readers say, hmm, there's something here that just doesn't work quite right, they might not know what it is. And we're the ones that can go back in there and figure out how to fix that problem. Mm -hmm. They're the best ones to identify that that problem exists. So I think we have have to do that. I think it's important for people to recognize that in a writing life, there will be much encouragement to give up. <laughs> well, there always is. For one thing, we're in a business that is based on rejection. Mm-hmm. So there will be hundreds of rejections. And if you let the first 10 or 15 or 20 of them knock you off your path, you're never going to make it as a writer because we all deal with rejection. Even, you know, writers who are very famous and have been doing it all their lives deal with rejection. It's just part of the business. There are always friends or family who want more of our time. And time is something that we don't always have enough of. Any of us Mm -hmm. have enough of. Uh, Writing doesn't pay well. In many cases, it barely pays at all. (laughs) So if you're writing in order to pay the rent, be sure that you can manage that or maybe have a second way to pay the rent while you're working on that. So it's a lot of hard work for a low income, unless your name is Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) 
It, but, but it's interesting. Have you ever read on writing uh, his his memoir about the craft of yes. writing? It's yes. it's fascinating. Even Stephen King suffered from years and years and years and years of rejection, and he had written tons and tons and tons and tons of things before he hit it big with Carrie, uh, and which kind of launched his career. And he was later on, a little later down the road in life, before that even happened. He had a wife. I think he had a, a child. He had a house. He was trying to make everything work. Uh, yeah. And he wasn't making money from his writing. So, oh. so what you say is so valid. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to make any money from writing. So I, I, I think that that's a place where a lot of people have a misconception. Mm. Um, at least in the general public, it's a big misconception that authors are earning lots of money. And of course, you and I know that that isn't the case. <laughs> um, we also know that it's very difficult mental work. It is. That's something that people need to be to recognize there is near constant solitude in order to write you need a silent place for many 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 hours at a time and it's very hard it can be done but it's very hard to write in little bits and pieces of a half an hour here and then a half an hour there really hard to hold your mind on the focus that a book or an article requires if you have to go off and do a lot of other things um, in between that's right. Multitasking is not an author's friend. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Gratification is extremely delayed. So it's a monumental process that takes years to complete. Uh, most of the people you know won't even remember that you were writing a book by the time the book actually appears. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be the type of person that's, that's willing to do that. So in general, I would say that, you know, you have to really like writing, that just the activity of writing. If you don't like the activity of writing, find another occupation. But mm. if you do like that process of sitting alone and wrangling individual words all day long, then I would say don't give up. And there will be people who will encourage you to give up. There will be lots of pressure to give up. Um, but if it's something, if you really love that process, that I think you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your future readers to continue. That is wonderful advice and, and very thorough. Thank you for, for taking us through those thoughts. I, I know that listeners are going to find all of that very valuable. Thank you, Janet. And speaking of not rejection and success, you, all of your books have been traditionally published, but particularly Horse Brain, Human Brain has been published by Trafalgar Square Books. Which is uh, really great. They, they publish a lot of books about horses. And they're, they're wonderful. I've met some of their representatives several times. I've had several of their authors on the show. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, but how did you decide, how did you end up working with them? What's that partnership been like? You know, can you talk a little bit about your journey traditionally publishing with Trafalgar Square? Absolutely. I have had a fantastic experience with Trafalgar. They have backed me up every step of the way. They've been completely supportive when there have been problems, as there always are during the process of you know, creating a book. They have been right there with encouragement and advice and guidance. And I have to say, I've been really happy to have a publisher and editors, marketing directors, managing directors, all of them who have hit the perfect medium between guiding me and answering my questions when I need it and leaving me alone 
when I don't. Mm. They've been perfect at that. And they were really able to judge. And I would expect, you may have a better notion of this even than I, because you've talked to many of their authors, but I would expect that they have an ability to do that differently for every author they work with. Because of course, some authors like lots of guidance mm -hmm. and some authors like to be almost totally independent. Mm -hmm. And I never really told them which one of those I was, but they picked up on it very quickly. And so I've had a really um, excellent experience with them. And one of the things I really like about traditional publishing is that for me, the thing I like most about creating a book is the actual writing. So I like to create ideas. I like to compose sentences that express those ideas. I like to revise. I like to polish things up and change organizations. And I, I just, I guess I'm a weird person. <laughs> I really enjoy those things. So that means that I like having a publisher who will do all of the other stuff that's required to make a book mm -hmm. because there's lots of other stuff that you have to do. And I don't want to spend my time doing all those other things. Um, so it's been a wonderful experience for me. Yeah. And I've heard the same thing from other authors who have been published by Trafalgar Square Books that they, they, they do a beautiful job and they take good care of their authors. And uh, I wanted to ask, so did you pitch and approach them for, for publishing this book or did they find you or, or were they recommended to you by someone else in your network? How, how, did, how did you find each other? I pitched a proposal to them mm. and they were my top choice mm -hmm. for publishers. And so I pitched the proposal first to them. It was just a really wonderful experience. Within a few hours, they contacted me and they got back to me and they knew my articles from Equus. Excellent. So that helped a lot that they were able to say, yes, we've been following your articles for a long period of time. You know, those articles have been going on for years and we're very interested in this. Um, so fantastic. It's a perfect fit, perfect publisher for this book. They get you. And then, you know, you did you did something amazing by testing your ideas with readers through Equus magazine, but also you gave yourself credibility with that byline. And, and that gave you support when you went to pitch your book. So that made, that was like a perfect beginning to all of this. Uh, and then I like, I liked your answer to this question. What do you wish you had known when you started out on, on this journey? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my previous books, there were very few visual aids. So that, you know, there were a few diagrams or a few photographs, but not too many. And in addition, the previous books were all published by the big five publishers. So um, Basic Books, HarperCollins, mm -hmm. those really main, mainstream publishers. And they have art departments. Well, this book, I really wanted to include a lot of art. And the art in this book is quite difficult because uh, so much of what's known about the horse brain is brand new. There are no pictures already out there for artists to follow. Mm. So many of these horse brain uh, drawings in my book are brand new, first cutting edge drawings for you know the world to appreciate. They they don't exist anywhere else, and nothing really like them exists. So the thing I wish I had known when I started out was to how to get the book art done. I really I was very naive 
about that. I didn't understand exactly how to describe to artists what kind of art I wanted. Mm. Um, and there's a real, there's a difficulty there that's probably inherent in the whole thing that authors are people who describe by words. We work in words. Artists are people who describe in terms of images. They work in images. They do not work in words. Mm -hmm. And so all of the words that I could use to describe a particular diagram or illustration just often didn't, it wasn't what they needed. They needed images. And in this case, we didn't have images. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. So so did your publisher set you up with an illustrator with then whom you had a relationship with in discussing how you wanted the the images to look inside of the book? I mean, th this is and really... Yeah, yeah. So the publisher recommended illustrators to me and I interviewed those illustrators mm -hmm. and I eventually made the decision which one I would choose. And the illustrator, Susan Harris, who did the drawings in the book, just did a fantastic job but it took me a long time first of all it took me a long time to find her and to realize that she was the person that i needed that i needed her particular skill set as opposed to maybe some other artist's skill set mm -hmm. um, and she and i got along really well she rides she's a clinician she understands many of the concepts that i was trying to show or illustrate with these pictures. And so she did a fantastic job. And yes, she and I then worked together and she was um, actually contracted with me to do the art for the book. And so she and I worked together. And then when we were done, we sent the uh, illustrations into the publisher uh, for the book. I really like the illustrations in this book. I hope people will enjoy them because I think they're really good. I think they add a lot. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, obviously you found the right partner, but the, you know, you are on like the cutting edge, the front edge, and, you, and it sounds to me like you found the right partner to help deliver your message to the world. And, and this is something for authors to keep in mind. It takes a village to get a book out into the world. I mean, yes, you write it, but then you've got your editors, you've got your copy editors, you have your illustrators, you have your graphic designers. So, you know, when a book comes into the world, a lot of people have helped it get into your hands. Absolutely. Lots of people. And then by the time the book comes into the world, then you have to deal with promotion and marketing and advertising and sales and travel and all of these other things. So there's really a lot. Um, mm -hmm. My, my uh, managing director at Trafalgar is a wonderful person. And she and I had kind of a funny experience where just about the time that the finished copy of the book was uh, in press and it was beginning to come out, it was going to be released. She wrote me a little message and she said, okay, we're, you know, we're in the last 24 hours here. The book is going to come out tomorrow and we're going to do, you know, there were all these things planned for the release of the book. So she said, get ready. We are at the starting post. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> I thought, what are you talking about the starting post? I am at the finish line. I'm tired. I want to sit down. I want to go and say hello to one of my friends that I haven't seen in two years while I've been working on this book. I want to get something to eat, take a nap. And uh, 
So it's a real different kind of view where the, uh, I think most authors do have that notion that, yeah, but when the book is published, that's the finish line. You've mm -hmm. done all of this, these years of advanced work, and there it is, and now you can hold it in your hand and be proud of it and feel satisfied with it. But to the publisher, that's the starting post. Mm -hmm. And so as I think as more and more authors have to get into doing more of their own promotion, we realize that there's a lot of work after the book is all done. That's right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, even though you prefer the writing and the getting nitty gritty and the reworking and the polishing, there still is an element when you work with a traditional publisher and an expectation that you're going to do some marketing on your yeah. end. They don't, you know, because a lot of authors do not like the marketing concept, but these days, all authors, whether you're independent, traditional, or a hybrid of both, there is an expectation that you will do some marketing on your end. So with that being said, am I right? First of all, there is the expectation for you. Absolutely right. Yes. And that has really changed in publishing over the last 15 or maybe 20 years, because it used to be that authors could write a book, finish the book, hand it over to the publisher, and the mm -hmm. publisher did the vast majority of the promotion and marketing and all that. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of that is coming back to authors. But it really does help. It helped me tremendously to have a traditional publisher who is able to help me with all of those things mm -hmm. and, uh, and guide me in learning how to do those things. Absolutely. And and that was actually my next question. You kind of touched on it a little bit in your last answer, but but how how have you been reaching readers around the release of this book? What are some of the things that you've been doing to reach your readers? One of the things that helped tremendously was having that backlog of of an email list of about 300 Equus readers from all those years before. And so that was tremendous. I could go back to them. I could say, hey, hi, you know, it's been a while since I talked to you and I've got this book out now. And uh, oh my gosh, those people responded in wonderful ways. So it was, that was really great. In addition to that, my publisher has extensive mailing lists. They have mailing lists of thousands of people in the horse world all over the globe. And so they were able, when the book was released, to notify everyone uh, that the book was out, and, and that generated a lot of interest. They also have contacts in the horse world among the very top international trainers and riders and breeders. This book is not just for riders. It's for veterinarians and farriers and breeders and anybody who, who works with horses. So the publishers were then able to send early copies of the book out for review to many of these top people in the horse world who were then able to provide their opinions of the book and we could use those opinions in the marketing of it. Uh, all of these things were really very helpful to me. And then, you know, they guided me in terms of creating a website and a Facebook business page and, and these other kinds of opportunities. And I'm really lucky to have people like you who are willing to um, interview me and, and to help me get the word out. Fantastic. And that, and I love, I love supporting you and the work you're doing in this book because I, I am fascinated. I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show. And it sounds, I mean, this is something I think so many people can embrace. And, and I love hearing that you found the right publisher at the right time that's taking good care of you. And Trafalgar Square puts together the most beautiful media kits I've ever seen. So I, I'm, 
I'm certain even more interviews are coming your way. Uh, so I also wanted to ask, you, you touched on a little bit of this earlier too, uh, but I always like to ask this question because every author answers a little bit differently. And I like to give this perspective to the list, to our listeners. What for you has been the hardest part about being an author, but then on the flip side, what has been the very best part for you? That's a great question, Carly. I like that. <laughs> I can see how you would get lots of different answers. From it's different from, for everyone. Every, every author, every writer has a different experience. So it's just so insightful to, to learn each person's. So, um, you know, I had a little bit of trouble coming up with the hardest part about being an author, but I think it probably comes down to the fact that in my work, I am, I am a writer. But I am also a rider with a D, and riding and training is very important to me. And so, you know, you have to have time for everything in your life to do the things you want. And books take up a lot of time. And I'm really happy that I spent this time writing this book. But I would have to say that most people do not want to sit still in total silence for six or eight hours every day seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And that's what it takes to write a good book. And when you do have to sit still in total silence for that long every day, it begins to cramp your writing. You know, it gets in the way of getting out there working with the horses. You feel like your muscles are all kind of turning to mush because you're just sitting there in front of the computer using your brain all the time. And so I was really happy that I was able to do both of those things. I think if I had not been writing at the same time that I was writing this book, it would have been hard for me to just sit still for that long alone, um, virtually all day, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and that's great advice. It's balance, right? Well, writing yes. with a T and writing with a D, they both take a lot of dedication and time those are there are two big uh undertakings forces in in writing a book or writing articles so uh but i i believe they really work well together and they balance each other because the writing is sitting inside behind a desk isolated works really great for introverts but then the the writing gets you outside in nature refreshes your creativity gives you that companionship and compassion and and you know clear mind that you get when you're with horses so they actually I feel like they balance each other really well and I'm with you I my books wouldn't get written written <laughs> if I wasn't riding my horses because they I feel like they really partner and pair well yes and then the best part for you about being an author the I mean clear. Me, yeah the best part for me is creating something meaningful out of the space inside your head mm -hmm. I like that yeah, it's like you're leaving a legacy. You created something that never existed before. And this is this is the thing about writing a book. I mean, this is your gift that to the world. I mean, this is something that didn't exist before and it's it feels so good coming out of you, but then when you're done with it, it's like, here, I created something that never existed before. You know, it's pretty amazing. Maybe it will be useful to someone. So yeah. That's right. And then uh, you know, I just wanted to, to mention this too. You are an active member of the Society for Neuroscience, the Pi Beta Kappa, the Association for Psychological Science, uh, the United States Hunter Jumper Association, and the United States Equestrian Federation. 
again, I don't know how you have, have all this time to be active, but, but what, how does being an active member of these organizations benefit you and your writing? Uh, what would you say to authors who are you know, thinking about getting involved in associations? Um, I would encourage it because for me anyway, it really allows me to keep up to date with the latest research in each of these areas. And for my type of work in brain science, being up to date is critically important. Mm. Um, brain science is changing every day. There are hundreds of new studies that come out every day. And uh, if you let yourself get behind in that, it's almost impossible to catch back up. So that is very helpful to me. And I would say, just as another kind of um, advantage, is that by being a member of these organizations, you get to know an awful lot of people who might well be interested in your work when it's finished. Mm -hmm. And so that goes back to your earlier question about reaching people and marketing, that I can market this book not only to people in the horse world, but to people in the brain science world as well. Because there's a lot of brain science about horses and about humans, about mm -hmm. human brains. Mm -hmm. that hasn't been done yet that my book brings up. And so I can, I can go to, for example, the conventions of the Society of Neuroscience and say, okay, here's something. Nobody has been looking at the way that horse and human brains interact. And, you know, at first they all look at me like I'm completely crazy, gone nuts. <laughs> and then I say something about, you know, do you, do you know how horses and humans work together? Have you ever watched you know, uh, a show jumping course or a dressage, uh, you know, high level Grand Prix dressage pattern or a reining pattern or, or any of these things. Have you really seen what horses and humans are capable of doing together? And usually they haven't. Mm -hmm. And once I show them something like that, they really sit up and they kind of think, wow, you know, there really is something going on there in terms of what I call brain to brain communication between horses and riders. And I love that you just being a part of these associations, not only do you get to speak about your work, but you might be inspiring other studies or other, other neuroscientists to take on looking at this really unique and special connection that human and horses have yes. through their brains. That's, That's incredible. My hope. That's yep. incredible. So Janet, what are you curious about? Like, what's next for you? Like, what are you working on now that this that you've given birth to this book, baby? Like, where are you looking down the line? I have so much more brain-based horsemanship to to express and to offer to the world. And so, what I really would like to do next is to continue in this vein, but with a number of other topics yeah. um, that all still relate to this horse and human partnership, so that so that we can continue to really understand more about what's going on with horses and more about what we can do to make their lives easier in terms of doing what we ask them to do. Mm -hmm. And safer, I would imagine. Much safer. That's another big issue. Safety is a big issue that's talked about in this book a lot because if you understand and you can anticipate mm -hmm. how a horse is going to react to something, you can make yourself much safer and you make the horse a lot safer too. Mm -hmm. So that it reduces injuries, human injuries, and it reduces plenty of equine injuries too. One aspect of that that's really interesting, I'm going to be co-teaching a large animal behavior course 
at the veterinary school for the Colorado State University because they want to bring in exactly that for that reason, that let's have veterinary students. This will be a required course for all of their veterinary students. And they want their veterinary students to have a better idea of how horses' brains work so that they can more safely and effectively work on those horses and keep them calm and relaxed without having to over sedate mm -hmm. uh, during a lot of the procedures that equine veterinarians have to do. That is miraculous. So, so the future is bright and you're educating people and you're, you're getting involved and you're teaching classes and you're really getting out there and there's more to come uh, from you on horse brain, human brain right. and yes. how they work together. I, I'm so excited to see where this journey Thank takes you. you. And Janet, I have so enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. Would you share with listeners where they can find out more about you and your books? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, too, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's been great fun talking with you. <laughs> uh, read, our viewers can find out more from my website, which is janet-jones.com. There is also uh, Trafalgar Books has a website, and that is horseandriderbooks.com. So that those will give you more information about me and about my book and my and my training philosophy, the ways that I go about doing things. And the book is now available pretty much all over the world. It has it is definitely available now in Australia and New Zealand through their distributor. It has been shipped to Europe and the United Kingdom, and they're supposed to receive it uh, right about now. So it will be there by the time this uh, interview airs. And of course, it's available in the United States and Canada through all online retailers and physical bookstores. Fantastic. And are there any social media channels out there that you're doing some author marketing on where people can connect with you? Are you on Facebook? I am on Facebook, yes. And the um, Facebook page is Janet Jones hyphen horse brains. And I, so the website and Facebook are kind of my primary ways mm -hmm. of getting in touch with people. And I really like interaction on those kinds of things. So I encourage people to email me or Facebook, you know, message me in some way if they have questions or comments about anything. That's fantastic. And in your show notes, I will make sure to link to all those places so you can get directly to Janet and learn more about her and her books and buy this amazing book. I'm going to gallop out and buy it right away. I've so enjoyed this, this conversation. And uh, again, thank you for the gift of your time. And I wish you so much success in your author career and your career with horses. Thank you for the gift of your time. Thank you, Carly. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and riding, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.